In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, we're in the middle of a sermon series. We're talking about God's word for your every day, and here's the intention of, of the sermon series. The sermon series is intended that we start to see life better in the sense that we start to see through the lens of God's word because that clarifies things. And I'll just give you one example, one example that's pretty, pretty obvious. If you understand, we just talked about this in Bible Basics, if you understand that uh, people are not generally good, but people are in fact generally sinful, that affects on how you, you understand some things. You're not surprised when something goes wrong at work. You're not surprised when something goes wrong in a family relationship. You recognize that we have to approach things with grace and forgiveness to make this work. If you assume that people are always good, you're going to be disappointed all the time. You're going to just do something like, uh, if you need proof of this, just put Halloween candy in a bowl that says take one, and that'll prove that people are not generally good, and so that you have to assume that they're going to just take this. I see that once in a while on the, the app, Nextdoor app. Does anyone see that? People will be devastated about stuff like this. Like, can you believe that some kids took our candy? I'm like, why wouldn't they take your candy, right? This is an assumption that clarifies things. Now, that's not everything. We talked last week in... Uh, about work, and it's kind of a percentage game, so I'm going to pull up a picture. Whenever we start talking about uh, things in God's Word, it's a percentage game, so not everything is 100%. 100% means that we all are affected by sin, that's 100%. 100% means that God loves all people, so if I talk about things like God loves you, or that your sins are forgiven, or that um, you're affected by sin, and we're all tempted, that's pretty easy, it affects everybody here. So last week, Micah talked about work. Do you know what the unemployment rate is in Douglas County? 2.1%. 2.1%. So 97.9% of people, and I don't know how this works because I just thought about that. Is that only people who are looking for work? Is that how that works? Okay, people who are looking for work, 97.9% of them have a job. So when Micah was preaching last week, in theory... On vocation, if he's talking about gainful employment, not just your calling at home and things like that, 97.9% of you should have said, okay, this makes some sense. That's fair. Today I'm talking about marriage. You know how what percentage of Americans are married? 48. I did a sermon series a couple years ago. You might remember it was five weeks long. Does anyone remember this on marriage? And many of you who are married, you're like, wow, that was really good. I appreciated what you did. I had more comments from that one that said, really, thanks for the marriage sermon, but I'm not married, so thanks for nothing. <laughs> and I could get that email every week, so it was really encouraging for me. But the gist, the, gist of, the gist of that sermon series was that marriage comes down to commitment, right? At the end of the day, it's not about um, all these other factors. It comes down to commitment. You have made a commitment to someone else. And when you make that commitment... We're saying that my, and this is important, my definition of beauty, my gauge of beauty is you. There's all kinds of other people in the world. My definition, my gauge of what is handsome is you. Because over, over time, right, things change. Does anyone realize this? As you get married, bodies change for the better, right? <laughs> like, objectively, we get more attractive, right? I mean, this all, this all goes down, and if you just did, like, that's why they have swimsuit editions with 78-year-old women in it, right? I mean, this is why it works that way. It just gets better and better and better, so it gets easier and easier and easier. But in reality, this is what we're talking about, right? Things change, but it does not matter. It doesn't matter what the world looks like. It doesn't matter what, uh, what you are looking like. You're, you're going to change, and your mind's going to change, and I'm going to lose my hair, and I'm going to get chubby, and all these other things, but it doesn't matter because my wife's definition of what is handsome and what is okay is me. And that means a lot, right? 
that means a lot. Because, is anyone, uh, we work in an at-will state? Does, do you know what that means? So I have two jobs. I have two jobs. One job is here, I'm called, which is very different than the job. I teach Latin once a week at Aspen View Middle School. It's an at-will, and I, I'd never heard of this term before. I just show up and I go, and just so you know, uh, you're employed at-will. I'm like, well, what does that mean? That means we can fire you for, they didn't say it this way. They, they say, they spin it in employee handbooks, if you ever notice that. That means that you, as the employee, can choose to walk away. I'm like, oh, wait, wait, I can do that all the time. What do you mean? It, it doesn't matter where I am. But they are saying to me, we can fire you for any reason whatsoever or for no reason. Good talk, right? That means essentially you're on, tr like, you're trying out every single day. And if you want to know how that feels, it doesn't feel super awesome. And I'll give you an example why that's, that wouldn't be great in marriage. Um, you might remember a story by Robert Siegel, if you listen to NPR, National Public Radio. I shared this when I was doing my marriage. Some of you are getting nightmares. You're like, oh, are you kidding me? We're still talking about it. But Robert Siegel had a story where this guy was talking about marriage, and he said, you know what? There's so much divorce, and there's so much pain that comes with it that people are getting not only married later and later, but he thinks you should have a contract for a set amount of time. I think the time he said is like seven years, and then just kind of re-up that contract. And Robert Siegel, if you know, he's retired now, a very distinct voice, said, well, isn't the beauty of marriage that you're committed kind of no matter what I look like? And, I, and I'm like, that's exactly it, Robert. That was it. And the guy's like, you know, I never thought about it that way, to say the beauty of marriage is that we're in this together because there's going to be some good weeks and some bad weeks. And I think I see that differently in the call that you've given me as a pastor. I don't wake up every morning thinking, today could be the day I'm fired. Any reason or no reason at all, right? I, that, that's not how I see it. I see it. You've asked me to be your pastor, and I'm going to do the very best that I can. There's going to be weeks that are good, and there's going to be weeks that are not so awesome. But I'm not sitting in this kind of realm of fear, and that's the same thing as marriage. Marriage says, we're, this is not an at-will contract. This is not like a tryout. We're in this together. So where does this go, and like, why would you talk about marriage here? Well, do you know what the percentage is in Douglas County that is married? That's a little bit different than America in general, 79%. And just for, anecdotally, I took attendance from last week, and I just, this was just last week. I didn't measure like all our people who's married and not married, but just last week in attendance, percentage of people that were married was 85%. We live in a county that has uh, lots of kids, and we live in a county that has lots of marriage just once, but I mean, just lots of marriage, right? This is what's going on. So I, hopefully, even if you're not married, I understand that, that you can get something from this the way that God talks about marriage. So the, the way that we're going to do this, we're going to look at a couple things. We're going to look at kind of the basis of marriage and our motivation for marriage, and then we're going to get to practically what does this look like as we talk about living in unity. Uh, first section, this is kind of a hard verse. This is in Ephesians chapter 5. This is probably the longest section on marriage. There's one other section in Genesis, but this is kind of one of the longer sections in Ephesians chapter 5. It kind of sets the tone. He says, I want you to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Lays the whole tone of how marriage works. You are thinking about each other. And if you're going to be married and you're going to be happy, you have to be thinking about the other person. Is it hard to live independently? I put two pillars there. Those are not toner boxes. Those are in-depth illustrations that I'm making. Those, I put two boxes there. It is not super difficult, I think, to work independently. You've roomed with people in college, like your roommates, right? You are not interdependent. 
like your happiness is not directly dependent on the person that you're rooming with. You're like, just stay out of my stuff. And they say, stay out of my stuff and keep your stuff clean. And they got it, got it. And you may turn out to be friends, but it's not that hard to live independently. And I think when you think about marriage, you could say, hey, we have a good marriage. And I think a lot of America would say we have a good marriage. Is it a marriage based on we live independently very well in the same place? Or is it a marriage that's leaning in on each other? Biblically, biblically, this is not an option. Biblically, the only option is to lean in and trust and think about the other person. So we'll talk about that in a second. So he says, wives submit to your own, that we have a longer section, so I'll read the whole thing and then I'll kind of give the takeaway from it. So wives submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So we have these roles that God has given us, his body of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, he also, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And this, um, we see these things that a husband is now to look after his wife. He said, here's the deal, wives, love and submit to your husband as you do to Christ. But now he explains, here's the expectation for you guys. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are all members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Two things, and then we're going to get into the unity factor. Um, The main thing that we're talking about here is the love and submission and respect all centers on our view of Christ. And I've said this probably a hundred times when we talk about parenting, I'll say the same thing. If you have a right relationship with God, then you can have a right relationship with your spouse. And if you have a right relationship with your spouse, you can have a right relationship with your kids. You cannot flip that order around. And to start off today, we're saying, God is saying, I want you to make sure you have a right relationship with me so you understand how things function. And to what degree does God love us? I did some research. Dogs put up for adoption. This is my puppy picture, and we have a number of things. And because there's this phenomenon, we, we got a dog a couple years ago, two, almost three years ago. So we got a dog, and I was reading about adoptions, and there's high percentages of dogs that are brought to adoption. So I started to think, and usually, do you know what age that happens? Specific ages. How many people are bringing puppies for adoption? Zero percent. That's what happens, right? Because puppies are absolutely adorable. If you had like this little dog in your life, you're like, this is the cutest thing ever. There's no way you want to give this up. But when do dogs get a little bit difficult? All of those with dogs, people are, it's usually at about six months-ish, six to eight months to three years. This is kind of the, they talk about the teen years of dogs at about a year and a half, which is very, very difficult. So if you have a dog right now and your dog's a year and a half, you're going, this is the worst decision we've ever made in our life. Because like the, now they're biting stuff and they do more things and they do bigger problems and you're so frustrated. So when they look at the kennel, this is the period of time where like 96% of dogs get brought to adoption and it's between the time of after puppyhood, right? Like usually you can imagine they come at Christmas and then right around the summer, they're like, this is so much work. 
and then we have this kind of two and a half year period where dogs get adopted. Here are the reasons why dogs get adopted though. So moving, landlord not allowing pet, too many animals in the household, cost of pet maintenance, they did this survey at some animal shelters, owner having personal problems, inadequate facilities, no home available for the litter mates, and then having no time for the pet. So we get kind of down all these lines, these are reasons, and for the adoption agency, I think it would be very difficult because you see these dogs and how many times do you think they see the same story again? This little boy comes in, he longed to have this dog, and then he returned it for adoption. Now this is true confessions time. I had two dogs growing up. One was named Ringer. I didn't name him. But my parents said I wanted a dog so badly that they said, we're going to get you this dog. So they went to the adoption agency. And, or the, the, we called it the pound then. We can't, the Humane Society, there we go. So we went there. We get Ringer home. And the first thing he does, he bolts in the house. I'm like, this is so exciting. And he pees on my toy box. <laughs> There's a close relationship between Ringer and I, uh, between Ringer and me. So this lasted maybe six months. And then if that, it was like three months. And I said, I can't do this. Like, this is not what I thought. And I think my parents, I, I wonder how many times Ringer's been adopted. If they're, they're thinking like, I don't really want a dog. Do you have some kind of dog to convince my kid he doesn't want one? They're like, we got the dog. <laughs> right? Or they pull it out. So that's our story. That's usually what happens. Eight months of ownership is usually where this kind of adoption start kind of comes. And um, so this goes all the way through. And then I also did a little bit of research on cats. Cats are a little bit different. So pet illness. Here's cats. Oh, I, I didn't even get that far. Cats, number one, is moving. Do you know what the other 92% is? It's a cat. Like, that's what, I'm not 100% on that. I, I didn't get as much research done on that one, but that's, I made some conclusions. So what am I getting at? What am I getting at? I'm getting at this. When God sees you, there's a time in our mind, like, we'd like to think we're adorable, and we'd like to think that we're so fantastic that God cannot help but love us. We'd like to think that we are so great that God has, he can do nothing like, like a small child, right? It is hard not to love a small child. And when you see a baby or you see a puppy and, you, and your heart goes out and you say, that, that's how God looks at us. But you know what? We grew up. And God says, here's my commands. And how many of our commands did we just say, God, I don't care? And how many times does God say, this is what I say about you, and we just ignore what he says about us? And how many times does God lay out things, and we just disobey, and we do what we want, we think selfishly, and we don't even, we don't share his word, we don't care about it, we do our own thing. And what does God do? Your relationship with God is not an at-will contract. God says, I am going to do whatever it takes to have you with me. And if that means I come all the way down to this earth and that means I give up my whole entire life, not a $35 neuter fee or something like that or just a little bit of time on the weekends or extra training, God says, I am willing to give up my entire life so that you can be with me and you can be loved. Only then can you understand the model of God's marriage. When God says, when you love like I love, now you're going to get it. That you're not trying to find how adorable some person is. And that person, while they're cute or while they work hard or while they're attractive and, you know, now it works or while they're nice to me and while they buy me stuff or while they have a good job, then you're okay. God is saying that is all wiped away. God says, I came into your life when you were as unlovable as possible. I came into your life when you were ringer and I'm going to transform you into something different. And when you understand that, this is where we get to marriage. And so the way the Bible talks about it, 
This is why man leaves his father and mother and he's united to his wife and the two become one flesh. The way I think about it is I just kind of lean these things into each other. There we go. I'm going to move this. The way I think about it is God says you are one flesh, which means there's a lot of times when you're in a marriage and you're in a relationship that you're saying, hey, I'm going to try and get back at the other person. But if you are both interconnected, what happens when you try and get back at the other person? How well does that work, right? It's like you're riding in this rowboat and you're going to try and get back to somebody by drilling holes in the rowboat and say, take that. (laughs) Right? Does that work? Have you been in a relationship with someone and you're so mad at them that you start to say things that hurt them? Have you ever noticed that, that it ultimately comes back to you and it affects your life? And so, I mean, it's not too hard to illustrate, but when you try and knock down on someone like this, the whole thing goes to pot. And you have one of two options. One of two options is, okay, this is what we're going to do. And this is where I think most people end up. You reach into each other. And when that person hurts you, you say, I just can't take it anymore. And I'm going to just stand on my own silo. It is not hard to function in a household on your own. You do your own thing. You get up in the morning, you got your own routine. You got your own hobbies, you got your own money because you have a job, you just do your own thing and the other person does their own thing and at night you might go like this, good night, I'm going to just hang out over here. That is not God's picture of marriage. He says you're one flesh, which means when you're connected like this, everything that you do should be thinking about how does this affect the other person, not in a selfish way because when you affect the other person in a negative way, who does it ultimately affect? It affects you. God says you're one flesh. And so his goal when he talks about marriage, we see a couple examples of it. Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And God says this is the ultimate. When you live in this, this united, continuous group, because that's where my blessings show. So let's just talk just in other groups. Have you ever been part of a group, Vicar talked about it, unity is seeing the same picture, you got the same goal in mind. Have you ever been part of a group that they have the same goal in mind and it was like the best experience you've ever had? A lot of people in sports, they say, I really enjoy being part of a team because what, they had one goal and they're working together and everyone had their part and they had their role just like in a marriage, you have your role and you're trying to get somewhere and do something. That was, have you ever been part of a team at work? And it's, it is a positive experience because you're trying to get to the same goal and someone is such a good leader, they bring you around and say, hey, listen, guys and, and ladies, this is what we're trying to do. And everyone goes, okay, I get it. I got my part. I'm going to do whatever I can so that we can reach that goal. You have a relationship with a friendship and you have the same goal in mind that we're just going to hang out and we're going to grow close together and this is going to work. This is what beauty is. Now, I hate Tom Brady. <laughs> that was just my point. My next certain point... <laughs> But Tom Brady had something interesting. There's a guy named Brandon Spikes. I think it's Brand- Brandon. He went to Florida. Is it Brandon? Brandon Spikes is a linebacker, and he was super ticked that he didn't make the Pro Bowl. There's probably a bonus involved or something. like. I didn't know anyone goes to the Pro Bowl. Apparently, Brandon Spikes wanted to go to the Pro Bowl. His best year ever. And uh, Tom Brady overheard him, and he goes, do you think I do this stuff to go to Pro Bowls? And he had this whole rant about the reason we're doing this is to get rings, and who cares about the Pro Bowl? This is the unity that brings a team that I hate together so that they're going back to the Super Bowl again. They said, this is what we're about. And I think there's something awesome when you've been part of a team, you've been part of a church maybe, you've been part of a group of people, you get part of a small group and they say, here's our goal. Our goal is to support each other and pray for each other. How much more beautiful is it when you get together in a marriage and you say, here's our goal. 
Our goal isn't me and you. Our goal is us. That's a beautiful thing. This is my station wagon growing up. You can imagine with five kids where I sat. It rhymes with backwards. So I'm way in the back, and I couldn't fit in the slide. This, this station wagon's too big. So I couldn't fit in the slide, but I sit in the back with my brother. And if you know growing up in Wisconsin, and I've told you this before, the air conditioning, you see that bench right there? That prevented all air conditioning from circulating beyond the front cab where my parents sat. Then my three siblings sat in the middle, so they got wisps of the cold air that would come over, and we would beg my dad. We'd be in the back seat, my brother and I, and we'd be facing backwards, and we're like, Dad, can you just crack the window? And he's like, no, we don't want to lose the AC. <laughs> the AC is like the equivalent of blower motor, you know, like when you buy those things with the battery and you're really hot at the fair, and you just go like that. That's the extent of the AC. So he was comfortable. I'm in the back and just dying of heat. And in Wisconsin, has anyone ever been there? The seats are made of vinyl. Has anyone ever had vinyl seats? Have you experienced these? So vinyl seats, and you'd wear shorts back. This is the 80s, so our shorts were only this long to begin with. So you'd sit on the vinyl seats like this, and it would get so hot. Like, like sweat is actually going down. When's the last time you saw your kids, like, sweating in the car? After, you know, they go to a practice, they sweat, and then they cool off because they have, you know, like, quad control for the AC. So I, we'd just be sweating. And then I had my little brother, who was the ultimate space invader. Does anyone have a sibling like this? Like somehow when it's so hot, they some just like put their leg next to your leg and you're like, could just don't touch me, right? And so it's getting super hot and it's super, you know, there's all this gun. What happens though when you start to fight? Right? And you, you like your face is getting red and you're getting hotter and you're like pounding on each other's legs, but you're still seatbelted in for safety. And well, it's the 80s, we didn't have to seatbelt in. But then so like our legs are touching and there's just heat and friction. The word that it uses right here is when God's people live in unity literally mean how beautiful it is when they sit next to each other. I think that's interesting because uh, Amy and I have been dating since um, 1991 we started to date and we used to go to, I can picture the restaurants and I can picture I was a host at a time at Good Company Restaurant and I would see these older couples come in and they would come in in a booth and where do older people sit in the booth? There's a man and a woman, where do they sit? Next to each other, right? The Older guys still think they need the gunslinger position, so they have, to, they have to face the door just in case a situation arises. But you, they sit next to each other, and I would laugh to Amy. I'm like, it's so corny. They sit next to each other. This is the goofiest thing ever. And we go on dates, and, and she probably maybe wanted to sit next to me, but I made some fun of the older people. Like, why would you do that? So we'd sit across from each other. Where do you think I sit now? I sit next to my wife. And we're the couple that the teenagers are rolling their eyes at because... Because when you are in love with someone, when you have this relationship with someone, it's not just about this emotional contact, just some physical contact is awesome, right? But what happens in a relationship when you're that close, there's going to be friction. There's ways that people solve that. I found this on the internet. <laughs> And I thought, that is really a good idea. But then I thought, I was going to rename the shirt, my mom cares more about her Instagram followers than our emotional health. <laughs> Do you know what I would have done to my brother if my mom put us in a big shirt during a fight? <laughs> body blow, body blow, body blow. <laughs> like, and he would have been crying. I'm like, I don't know why he's crying. And I was bigger, so I'd just start running around. He'd probably be like hanging around on it. There is no way that this works. When in your experience, when you're fighting, that physical proximity is the answer. 
Does anyone experience, has this worked anywhere? You think it works? This, you do? <laughs> when my girls are mad, I'll usually move in and give them a hug, and they're like, don't touch me! <laughs> so that's a little bit different interpretation than I had. So normally, physical proximity is about the worst physical thing that you can have, right? I mean, just get near me. What do you want? You want the space, and you want to go into your own realm. So when you get into fights, as a married couple, what do you do? And, and, and you're in a situation that makes you mad, you drift away, and you do your own thing. And this does not work. The one example, maybe why my wife is laughing, is because of a reconciler. I've told you this story already, too, so now it sounds like just personal stories from Jared. We're going to get to this in a second. So when, we, when I was a vicar, Micah has an incredible mattress. It's new. <laughs> You're pushing it. Ours was not new. It was handed down by all the vicars. We lived in Thornton in a garden-level apartment, and I've told you that before, that it was so veed in the middle that we would be mad at each other at the night. We called it the reconciler because no matter what you did, you would slowly drift towards each other, and you'd wake up going like, yeah, I can't, glad that we made up. But usually that's not how it works. You can't take two kids or go at work and <laughs> just go to someone at work. Hey, do you want to lay down the reconciler? We'll just, we'll just, we'll just... We won't be fighting anymore after this, you know, this deal goes down. That's not going to work, right? So the only way that this works when we talk about it, and this is why I brought this tape, like you can always pull away, and this is not going to work awesome. This can get all knocked down. The only thing I think that secures this relationship, even though it's, see, that one's not even perfect, but the only thing that does that I think, and the thing that, the glue that's going to hold your marriage together, the thing that makes unity happen is not just saying, I'm right, you come to me. The thing that's not going to make it happen is just living in your own silo. The only thing that brings that marriage together is someone saying to the other person, 100%, I'm sinful, and 100%, I'm loved by God, and based on what God has done for me, I'm coming to you to say I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And the way I describe it, and, and I've told you this before, it's like a rope. And there's times where that rope gets cut, but every time you say, I'm sorry, and the other person says, I forgive you in Christ, there's a knot, and it gets closer and closer and closer and closer. And how do you live in unity? This is not how it works. Just some forced physical proximity that's not going to do it. The only way that it's going to happen is a marriage that's built on God, a marriage built on God and God's forgiveness. And here's the unique thing that happens. And I should have had cool illustrations that go, if you start here and the other person starts there and God is here, what happens as you guys get closer to God? As a couple, as you get closer to God, naturally you get closer to each other. And what does it look like to get closer to God? How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. You sit side by side in a relationship built on commitment no matter what things look at. You are my definition of what beauty is. And it's a relationship that's built on forgiveness, not because I'm so magnanimous and awesome, but because God had enough love on me that together we're going to do something special, which gets to our final point. This is where God bestows his blessings and even life forevermore. I'm reading a book um, by uh, Brene Brown. She, she's written a number of books, but she had one final, she had a thing that she was talking about, about expectations and how much better it is when people say, um, if you'd say to someone at work, 
can you do this for me, like make this coffee and then you leave and then it gets, comes back and you're frustrated with it. Has that ever happened to you? You say, hey, can you do me a favor and do this? And then it comes back, it's not what you want. So she said, you need to come up with something that says, what does done look like? So you have this relationship, right? And you're talking, you want something done and they say, okay, what does done look like? And then you can lay this all out and the person goes, okay, that's what done looks like. Got it, got it. And they do that. And she says, that's good, but you know what's even better? She, the term that she uses is let's paint done, which is kind of an odd way to say it. But I think in your marriage, if you want to know how do we make this marriage that's amazing is you get together and you say, let's paint done. Because unity is having one goal. And, and to you and to me, what does that goal look like? How can we paint that picture so that we know what we're trying to do with our kids? We know what we're trying to do with our money. We know what we're trying to do with our faith. We know what we're trying to do with each other. And when you can paint done and you see that through the lens of God, you're going to have something that's beautiful and something that's pleasant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your word is amazing. It's humbling to us. We, we, we can't even understand the love that you show us so easy we we think that we're amazing and that you love us just because of who we are that doesn't last long it doesn't last long in human relationships it doesn't last long in your relationship with us we see that your mercy has come down and you've loved us in spite of who we are help us have that kind of heart a heart that says we submit to you ultimately and we want to love like you love in our marriage that means setting aside differences it means setting aside our problems and leaning in on each other growing close to each other and seeing a vision of our future that is built not on my idea or her idea or her idea and his idea, but a future that is seen through your lens of your word that says uh, we want to grow closer and closer to you because when we do that, we grow closer and closer to each other and then we're a model of that beautiful picture of what is pleasant living in unity with you. We ask this in your name. Amen.